Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On this podcast, you'll find conversations with the winners and finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as conversations with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is making her second appearance on the podcast, and last year I interviewed her about her book, Nevers. My name is Sarah Cassie. I live in Victoria, BC. I grew up um, in various places across Canada, especially Manitoba, and I write poetry, nonfiction, and children's books. And I've written 17 children's books that are published, and I've got a few more coming out this year and next year. When I asked Sarah which character from a book she would like to be, she went to the pages of one of her books. You know, there's a little part of me and I think all the characters, but I think I might be Niswa in my book Nevers because he's so light on the earth and he's got his priorities straight. So relationships matter, neighbors matter, helping others matters, and he's very in touch with nature. I think he would roll easily through the world and that would be nice <laughs> for me. Sarah Casti's book, Genius Jolene, is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. And she starts our conversation with a reading from the book. So I'm going to read parts of Genius Jolene. So each year, uh, Jolene takes a road trip with her dad, who's a trucker, in his 18-wheeler. One thing you need to know before I start to read is just that every year when they do this trip, they take a, um, they decide on a food to try at every single stop they make or as often as they can and they rate it and compare it. And this year it's onion rings. I've done long haul trips with dad since I was four years old. I wasn't even in kindergarten then and rode along in a booster seat. Now though, I don't need a booster seat and I have to miss school. I love school, but I super love going on the road with dad. He tells the teacher he needs me with him. That's what he says. Not that he wants me on the road, but that he needs me. Can you put together some schoolwork for her to do on the road? He asks. Usually the teacher gives me a book to read and a brown envelope thick with worksheets. But last week, in addition to that, Ms. Formosa opened a drawer in her desk and pulled out an old-style digital camera. This is homework, too. Well, truck work, she said. I want you to take three photos a day of things that strike you as important. I don't care what makes them important. Beautiful is important, but so is ugly. If it makes you feel happy or sad or makes you think or wonder, take a picture. If it matters to you it's important. I immediately turned on the camera and took a picture of Ms. Formosa. She laughed. Then she raised an imaginary camera and snapped a photo of me. It was like we'd hugged each other. When you get back, she said, we'll put your photos on the big screen and you can tell us all about your trip. It's cool riding in the truck, so high up that the rabbits in the ditches are as small as mice. Friends ask if it's boring, but it's not. 
There's always something to see or think about. I get a kind of royal feeling up there, like I can look out over the world and make decisions about it. Looks like it's going to rain, Dad says, as we pass a farmer's field. The cows are lying down. I watch as a cow lowers herself onto her front knee and then her back knees. Dark clouds are collecting in the sky above. I look at the cow again, her belly on the grass, and I figure something out. I know why they lie down, I say. To keep a spot dry for when it starts to rain. Who wants to lie in wet muck? Dad clucks. Genius Jolene strikes again. We never see the rain. We drive out from under the storm clouds, and soon they're behind us in the big side mirror. Dad and I stop for supper at a roadside burger stand that has a million signs advertising huckleberry milkshakes. We each get one of those, along with burgers and, of course, onion rings. We sit at a picnic table under a willow tree. Did you ever notice that onion rings are always different sizes, Dad asks? Yeah, I just realized why. A bulb goes off in my head. An onion bulb. I get it. It's a ball. And if you cut a ball in slices, you're going to have smaller slices at the edges. The very middle is the biggest, like the world's equator. But wait, each slice has smaller and smaller rings inside it. I like the big ones, the equators, Dad says, lifting a large one to his mouth. The onion snakes out nude from its deep-fried batter casing, and he slurps it up. I like the small ones, I say, the North Pole and South Pole. I pop a little brown O into my mouth. Then we'll get along like Jack Spratt and his wife, Dad says. He recites the nursery rhyme. Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean, and so between the two of them, they licked the platter clean. The sun is going down and the air grows cool. Dad circles the truck, tightening the straps that keep the tarp snug over the large paper rolls, while I knock on every one of the truck's 18 wheels with a hammer and listen closely. Every wheel rings out when I hit it. Thud chime. If it doesn't chime, that means the tire needs air. It may even have a slow leak and need replacing. Luckily, all 18 wheels are just fine. So I'm curious for this book, because I remember you sharing a little bit about how Nevers started and where the inspiration came from. And I'm wondering where the inspiration for Genius Jolene came from. Well, actually, it really did come uh in a sudden moment, I was at the BC Ferry. I was catching the ferry back from Vancouver to the island. And, and um, they call, you know, you wait in the parking lot for a while before you can board. And uh, they made the call out over the loudspeaker. And so everybody scrambles back into their cars to drive on. And I noticed a girl who was about uh, 10 years old. And she was wearing a giant t-shirt. It was summertime and nothing else. So it was like her dad's t-shirt and it came down, you know, close to her knees. And she scrambled up into the front passenger seat of an 18-wheeler. And I saw her dad on the other side, or who I imagine was her dad, get up on the other side. And I thought, oh my gosh, she needs to have a book written about her. And she was strong and sturdy and able and confident. And I thought, yeah, she needs to have a book about her. So it's for her. And you you mentioned in an email to me that you actually spent some time on an 18-wheeler. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? 
Um, yeah, I was just uh, visiting friends in Saskatchewan. I had mentioned this book and um, in Saskatoon. Uh, so my friend took me out to happen to know somebody who worked. Uh, he knows everybody and knew somebody who ran actually a, a trucking company. And he, this fellow was very welcoming and let me wander around in, in and out of the trucks. I didn't go for a ride, I have to admit, but um, I did used to hitchhike a lot so I have been in a lot of trucks over the over in my life um and I did have driven trucks but not this size before for work um and so yeah so I had a wonderful um few hours there um in this teeny tiny town and it was you know minus 30 and actually it was like two days later the Humboldt or maybe even the next day the accident Humboldt took place with the hockey team and the grizzly accident that happened there so actually that resonated very profoundly with me because it was very near to where I'd been and just being that close to trucking in that moment yeah made that something made that resonate um, and especially everything that we'd been talking about because we had been talking about safety precautions and things like that so um, but it was fun to yeah to get to sit in the car and I've done that once before for my book um, Skylark which is about a family living in a car for a while and um, I'd seen a car advertised in the classifieds and called the guy up and he welcomed me to come and sit in his car for a while as well that one I did get to take a ride in and, uh, with him so second time I've done this kind of car interior research <laughs> well it's funny because I've always I mean I guess it was more as a kid but I always imagined what it would be like to like have your whole little bed and situation in the back and how I just thought as a kid that would be so cool and so I feel like the book kind of gave me that that chance to look inside there yeah, it's pretty magical. So then you think about that bed all the time. Where do they sleep? What's it like? So it was nice to see that. See the uh, little fridge in the back and the double bed you could bring down the top and have a spot for her to sleep where she does. And her dad sleeps below. Got to see all the, the dials and gauges and gizmos, um, especially on the driver's side. And as the book says, her the passenger side is a little less exciting, that's for sure. Yeah. So, and then the things, little details like hammering the tires that I just, that part I just read from the book was the kind of lessons I got that day because it so happened that the man giving me the tour, he used to take his children on the road so he could remember what it was like for them. Yeah. It's almost like as close as we get to being snails is truckers or something <laughs> carrying their, their home on their back. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, it's a funny, you're, you're like tied down, but you're also very independent. Yeah. I mean, it's a massive responsibility and weight. And yet, yeah, you're pretty free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in the reading, you you mentioned the, the food and the rating of the food. And, and I know, again, you mentioned to me that um, you wanted to really embrace that kind of non-judgmental joy of eating in the book. And uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and why that was an important thing for you to explore in this book. Uh, I think there's a lot of, I judge, uh, well, we all know there's a lot of um, judgment attached to eating and a lot of What's the word I'm looking for? Moral, sometimes something about morality attached to eating. And I just think it's all so wrong. It just makes me shiver when I hear people say, oh, I did, I behave badly and have dessert or something. And that doesn't correlate. And I was always very careful not to talk about eating or dieting or anything like that in front of my children or body in any kind of negative way. It was really important to me. And um, yeah, I, I feel like, oh, 
the weight, why, why I just wanted to, well, food is wonderful and there are too many messages that connect food with, yeah, as I say, these, these kinds of judgments about the body. It's, it's uh, silly. So anyway, um, and it was also important to me that Jolene was not one of these skinny little kids that do tend to occupy children's books, these light little waifs, which is unrealistic and untrue and not representative and in itself is judgmental just through absence and omission. So um, that yeah, I did want to definitely have a child occupy their space and also the joy of eating i think the the part that i enjoyed about the joy of eating in this book was that it was that joy of eating with people like it was something that she shared with her dad and it was something they kind of developed together and i think that's a really important um thing that sometimes get lo- gets lost when we talk about food and eating is that it's it is such an important way to build relationships with people around us and you know and sitting down with your family and sharing food and so i thought that was something interesting too it is an incredibly intimate thing and you are tasting the same thing. You're talking about something your body's experiencing in a very, in a, in a more important way than, oh, it's cold out or I got shivery or whatever. I mean, that's there too. We do express that. But with food, yeah, I agree. That feeling of how to make you feel, what it tastes like, oh, we should have put a little more sugar in here or a little more salt. You're right. Like it's a wonderful place to bond and you can plan and it's, Pro, there's a, they have a bit of a project they're doing together, taking notes on these onion rings. And and the other thing that you included too, so there was the love and the joy of eating, which we saw in your reading, but we also saw a glimpse of this as well, which was the love for learning and the love for um, having just like this brilliant, vibrant interest in the world, um, which Jolene obviously has. And uh and I think that's another interesting thing that relates to young girls, too, because often that isn't something that's emphasized or is emphasized in the wrong way for young girls. So if you wanted to talk about that and, and why that was important to include in her personality. Yeah, I think you're. that's right. Um, it's that kind of uh, expression. Of, another one I didn't want to talk about with the kids or never let come into the house was I'm not good at math. I think that's one that gets gendered pretty quickly um, or has been and for absolutely no reason. I'm proud to say my sis- my daughter just graduated from university with a degree in mathematics. <laughs> we used to do math before bed all the time and neuroscience. So I think kids, I guess I, I've spoken before about writing. I've always been interested in children's inner lives and we spend 90% of our lives in our heads and I've always wanted my work to acknowledge and affirm uh, children's inner lives, um, this this thing called thinking. And um, part and parcel with, I think, a healthy inner life would be curiosity and uh, considering the world around you um, and, um, and the confidence about the way you see it and what kinds of um, deductions and conclusions you might come to about it and puzzling out little little um uh, the 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 evidence you see and um, what it means puzzling out the meaning i guess and for children why would you squelch that um and how does it get squelched i think it i think we all have complaints about education uh it didn't work for one of my sons in a in a quite i want to say radical way that it didn't work in a quite damaging way it did not work 
And so I guess learning has always been interesting to me and your natural organic inclination to learn and how um, top-down um, schooling can maybe be. So maybe there's a little bit there too. I like the bottom-up approach to learning. Uh, I know it's not always realistic. Of course, it's not always realistic when you have 30 kids, but it's something you can definitely, I don't want to say encourage because I don't ever think of writing as being instructional or meaning to encourage, but it's um, give give good, good. Um, I want to say a leash to or give, allow in a book, which is a one-to-one relationship as opposed to that teacher's teaching 30. So yeah, I do want to uh, encourage actually thinking, <laughs> thinking that's your own. Well, and I think I, I'm curious about the, because as you were reading, and maybe I didn't realize this when I first read the book, but um, it's written in first person. So we get to hear from Jolene from her, um, not through a filter. And in trying to explore those inner lives, is that a choice that you make to really let us into the character through first person? I can't remember if you did that with Nevers too, but. It's a good question. Um, I think Nevers is my only book that's in the third person. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I think it is easy to get in the first person. I think it's, it seems to be sometimes the most honest way to write fiction and because it's realistic I guess because as a reader as any human we see everything through our own experiences so um, that sort of view of various lives at once is immediately artificial and so therefore the narrator is not actually human not to say I'm opposed to that kind of you know third person uh, writing but uh, and I wonder I'm not sure I've never checked with a child you know if that would be an interesting little question or study if first person is if children prefer books that are written in the first person but it is like having a friend I think and uh, you kind of trust them but of course there's less room maybe for the unreliable narrator Mm. or it's a little trickier I don't think that's an issue with Jolene that doesn't come up for her, I don't think. She's never trying to really hide anything. She just gets hurt at one point and has trouble expressing how she's feeling. And it seems like it really allows, like you were talking about that thinking and in the inner lives. And I don't I don't know that we don't get that in the same way with third person. You know, we really get to see Jolene work through her hurt and her frustration and her anger. And, and I think I could see that being very relatable to a young reader to be able to kind of see how that plays out from being like in, in it instead of being at a distance. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Like whispering in your ear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about that, that moment and everything that happens around, um, the accident and maybe I I always I'm always afraid now that I was spoiling things on the podcast by talking about this but I'll try not to give too many things away but what I found really interesting about that was that you didn't come to a tidy resolution with that um you know things didn't wrap up nicely which I think we are we expect from maybe children's stories and children's movies and you know like that there's that happily ever after and we and there is that in some sense, but that part of it isn't resolved. And I wondered if, if, um, cause I actually really like that because I think it does teach an important lesson about how things in the real world do often, uh, roll out. And if you could just talk about how that, that part came up for you and if you did fight any urge to resolve it in a, in a tidy way. 
What a great question. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. I got stumped at that point in the book. So, uh, so there, so it's, I think it's okay to talk spoilers because it's such a short book. <laughs> it's not spoiled for long. I think you can read it in 45 minutes. So, uh, yeah, so there is an accident and, and, and mixed up with, but not with Julian, but mixed up with that accident, she does encounter homophobia and a terrible comment. And her father is gay. So this, of course, resonates deeply with her. And I got completely stumped uh, what she was going to do there. Is she going to get angry? And I wasn't sure. Um, and luckily, the father steps in and gives some guidance. So in a sense, gave me guidance as well. And I could sort of follow along holding his hand. But yeah, you're right. And I did talk to a few different people during that week. I remember what would what should I do? What should what do you think? And it was my father who said, gave this, I think, the, the highest road response, but still debatable, maybe. I thought I would go with that because I wasn't totally comfortable with it. But I thought I should go with that because the one I'm comfortable with maybe you shouldn't be comfortable with any like maybe you shouldn't be comfortable with the response to this circumstance until the circumstance never arises so yeah that's such a good question and that is really that was a bit of a gnarly knot thank you for asking it yeah because I can see it being one of those things where you want you you know as a reader too you want the woman to apologize you want her to see the other side and to see that she was wrong in her assumptions but that's not always the way it plays out and and that and that there can be a resolution that's uncomfortable but still somehow we move past it and we move into our lives and have to kind of let it go yeah and and you also want the father to throw away the flowers and for them to just leave and not even bother having a conversation with her or trying to express anything i think to her any kindness yeah sometimes things get too resolved uh and um unrealistically resolved i mean the same thing happens with conversations and books i've been noticing that lately because i was feeling so bad like i never have conversations with my children like and then i realized oh like they do in books yeah well that's a pretty uh, manageable <laughs> environment to have a good conversation any conversation with anybody really without interruptions yeah anyway yeah so you would want her to apologize but uh it's, i guess it's more often that that doesn't happen well, there's a little key of her son uh, sort of getting it. So the next generation, there's a little hint that, okay, sh this woman might be, you know, un unsolvable in this way. But, you know, next generation is going to get it. In this case, you can't rely on the next generation though. all the time. Just, I mean, in terms of burdening them with our hopes. <laughs> Yeah, what I found what I found interesting too, and, and in just kind of talking this through with you, is that that leaning into uncomfortable uh, situations like that is okay in like we do it in adult literature all the time but it's something that we it seems like a very um a careful place to play with with kids literature and maybe it's maybe we don't give kids enough credit to like to figure out that discomfort and to come to their own resolutions about it and we need maybe it feels like sometimes it needs to be too spelled out um, and that maybe they need to be okay to live in that kind of uncomfortable area too. Yeah, with ambiguity, um, within all areas, that's is a false pro promise. We all know this whole feeling of oh, I'm going to become an adult and everything's going to be just fine, and then you realize oh boy, this is not. So I think that is that one of the, this is like one of those myths we teach children, um, and. Uh, 
I think it would be good to maybe get learned in ambiguity and um, the fact that some people are not nice. I think that's actually a really great lesson for children to learn. And, you know, you, 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 yeah, we teach them to be kind and generous and charitable or helpful or whatever, but there are some people that you actually should keep your distance with, or you need to actually think things through a little better and in terms of your relationship with them. And it worries me sometimes that we haven't been teaching children that. And I'm not saying give up on people by any means. And I'm not saying put yourself first either, like protect yourself at the expense of what could be a, a good relationship. That's not what I mean. I mean, there are boundaries you need to have with some people. Not all people are going to be good and kind. Yeah, and, and too, right, and I think it goes with that is that whole, you know, we teach kids um, very early on to apologize and to apologize, you know, go make sure you say you're sorry and go. But what happens if the person on the other end doesn't say, oh, it's okay, or I forgive you? And what, do, like, I think kids grow to expect that response, but what happens if someone is just like, you know, forget it, or I, I'm, I'm not over it, or all those things. So I think that's the ambiguity too, right, is we can teach those lessons, but not everyone's going to respond the way we hope they will. Absolutely. I agree. I'm actually working on a, or just finished a kid's book called, uh, this is kind of slightly different from what you're saying, but it's called, uh, I don't want to apologize to Paul P., and because, uh, you know, we have multiple Pauls in the class. So you have Paul S, Paul T, Paul. Anyway, and it's about a girl and her mom is saying, sees her daughter give this boy in her class a really bad look when he goes past her and or say something mean to her. And she says to him and she says, um, apologize, like you got to say sorry. And the girl does not want to apologize to Paul P. And then later her other mother that night goes a little pays attention a little more has maybe a little more time and says what's going on and so paul p had actually kissed her without her consent at lunch so it's kind of that i don't know if it's still if it's the same but it's a kind of ambiguity yeah it's it's you know the right thing is not always the right thing the, you know what we're told is the right thing is actually not we need to start breaking that open again it does seem right to apologize does seem right. It does seem right to apologize if somebody gives you the opportunity to apologize, that kind of thing. But maybe it's not. It's that whole idea of having children um, discover the answers for themselves, and instead of telling them, uh, setting them up for this the, by these rules that certainly don't work. Yeah. The other, the other kind of ambiguity, and maybe um, this was the relationship with her parents, and of course with her dad and his new relationship, which I think is also something kids are, are still trying to figure their way through. I mean, I think um, families look so a million different ways these days, but they still don't often always get represented that way in books and and um, what it's like to, to watch your parents go through a situation like Jolene's parents go through and are still seem to be quite kind to each other and are friends. And so, um, yeah, I thought that was another interesting part. And, and I'd be curious how, to hear how that developed for you or if that was something that you kind of always knew was going to shape up the way it did. That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I always knew it was going to shape up that way. No. I know, I knew that that I wanted to give it a light treatment and I didn't want to make the book all about 
you know, sometimes it can be all about the divorce or it can be all about coming out for somebody. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be that story. So maybe I was a bit too light on that potentially. And I, maybe I'm in there a little bit with denial because I know I come from a home where the parents are, you know, divorced and separated, have three children. And I don't want to necessarily have to always look at how hard that can be and has been. That's not the full story. And yet it is a layer that sort of permeates the whole story. Um, but I guess it's thinner in some places. And I wanted to just look at the thinner side where it's thinner. So all I mean to say is, I mean, Jolene is very loved by both her parents. That's very clear. Her parents are health, are dealing healthfully with their separation and divorce. It doesn't necessarily have to be disaster when there's a lot of communication. And of course, in this case, quite a good reason for the separation and divorce um, and one that's being explained and is well explored, I think, by, by the people involved, if not by me. Um, so in that case, yeah, I guess I wanted to somewhat say divorce isn't the end of life. It's not the worst thing that's going to happen to you or could have, could happen to you. I wanted to show that this kid is well-loved. I mean, the whole idea of a broken home is just and and these statistics about children of single parents they're they've always they've always they look at children's success in these statistics in these studies and they correlate it with being the child of a single parent or or the child of divorce but it should be correlated with the, the stresses on a single parent for example low income or it should be correlated with that very um a uh, common reason for the reason for for a woman to be um, the single parent of children, which is that there was abuse in the relationship, and that the often it's the father who was abusive, and therefore these children are grappling either with being parented by someone who is abuse, or they have a mother who has experienced abuse and may have PTSD. So it, it's always laying at the fault of essentially the mother who is divorced. And that larger context of the, um, in this case, the cases I'm thinking of, the father and the abuse and, and the psychiatric issues, if there were psychiatric issues and they've now fallen to the children, there's so much more in that picture um, than what we're shown. So I guess the correlation, the correlative of that is that without those extenuating circumstances, a relationship between a mother and a father who are divorced with their daughter and their daughter can be absolutely perfectly healthy and fine with communication, which there is in this case, a lot of communication. It's interesting because I think, and I think too, you know, um, going, going into what you were saying about single moms and, and I think a lot of young people who are going through, you know, whatever situation they're going through, their parents divorcing for a multitude of reasons that don't often get explored when we just lump it under divorce or single parents or, um, they start to take on those identities too. Right. And, and when kids are so young, they don't often see things in the gray areas, the way that we as adults do. And so it's all very black and white. And when something changes, they don't realize that it, there's, it's not necessarily negative and that it can change again and keep changing 50,000 times after that. So, um, 
I think that was interesting too to watch Jolene go through those changes uh, and because I'm sure those are very like um, natural feelings for kids to go through watching your parents change and their identities shift and your identity in that that family unit shifts and so uh, yeah I think there's a lot there I I think all kids books deal with this how kids see themselves uh, in the world and in their families and um, just in their own being too. And of course, one maybe this will bring us full circle, but um, one part of that is the genius Jolene uh, part, which her dad says to her over and over again, calling her genius Jolene. And if, and as you've mentioned, she's not a genius; she's just Jolene. So why was why was that uh, in there, and, and what was the choice around calling her genius Jolene? It's always lightly said. I mean, it's certainly the. The father is not grabbing her by the shoulders and saying, you are a genius yeah. <laughs> in any serious way. It's just a light way of saying you're unique and you're like everybody is. And your view of the world is exciting in your own way. It's always attached to being Jolene too, isn't it? Your genius Jolene and here is genius Ian and here is genius Megan, you know, so I guess it's just a light way to say you are, you've got your own way of seeing the world and that's got to be genius because it's the only way that you, that, you know, that the world is seen. So I think it's partly that. And it's, it's an expression of love and she is thoughtful and she is thinking and she is solving little problems along the way as all children are. And so when they see Jolene solving a problem in the world, they might go, Oh, like figuring out the cows, why they lie down before it's about to rain. They'll think, Oh, I'm, I, oh, I have an idea too about that. I wonder if I'm a genius too in that, in a light way. Thanks so much to Sarah for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you'd like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you follow us there, you'll get updates about events and more. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Benjamin Perrin, whose book, Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis, is a finalist for the 2021 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes and the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.